I'm Joe DeClara, and this is the Gaming Trend Podcast. Our special guest, composer Lena Rain, starts off our show to talk about the original soundtrack of Celeste and how it reflects the game's themes of anxiety, inner conflict, and mountain climbing. After that, Mike Pierce returns to host the show as we discuss the fall of a popular RTS series, criminal charges against a CSGO figurehead, and other stories. For the week of February 15th, here's what's trending. I want to get your name right. Is it Lena or Lena? Uh, Lena. Lena. It's so nice to finally meet you. Yeah, likewise. These last few weeks, I've been playing Celeste, a 2D platformer that has become immensely popular for its excellent design, fluid controls, and most especially, its uniquely sincere tone. As it tells Madeline's story of self-acceptance, a charming cast babbles away in synthesized voices, the winds of Mount Celeste whistle, and the gentle plunks of a piano decorate Madeline's hops and dashes. This week, Lena is here to talk about the music of Celeste. My guest today is a composer and music producer for video games. She has written music for games like Guild Wars 2, Heart of Thorns, Hackmud, Date or Die, and this year's hit 2D platformer, Celeste. Hailing from the mystical exotic kingdom of Seattle is (laughs) Lena Rain. Lena, thank you so much for joining my show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, it's great to have you. Uh, You have a very interesting background when it comes to music and gaming. Uh, You started Mm -hmm. off, uh, you broke into the industry as a tester. Uh, Then you became eventually a designer at ArenaNet for Guild Wars 2. Uh, Mm -hmm. And eventually you found your way into uh, creating music for that game. Can you tell us how, from your position as a designer, you managed to get yourself noticed as a composer? Yeah, well, it kind of, it came about by accident, um, I like to say, because um, I was not intending to, like, use my designer position as a, as a route into getting uh, the ability to write music for games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I obviously have wanted or had wanted to um, write music for games for, for a long time, uh, but... Uh, we were working on some post-release content for Guild Wars 2. We had uh, I worked on the the shipped you know, shipping game uh, came out, um, and we immediately started going into like post uh, post-release plans. And so we had a bunch of like holidays that we were planning for Halloween and and Christmas. You know, the, sort of the the standard MMO holidays. And um, so I was. Uh, in a brainstorm meeting for our uh, our sort of you know holiday Christmas uh, event, and one of the sort of one of the the mini games ideas that came up was to do like a bell choir sort of thing, mm-hmm. okay. um, and it was something that sort of like caught my ear because I was like, oh, I used to play in bell choirs uh, when I was okay. younger, um, and I really wanted to like see if I could find a way to make, you know, playing a bell choir, like an actual, like MMO thing to do. Uh (laughs) So, um, I used, you know, the obvious, uh, comparison, like, you know, sort of guitar hero, rock band, sort of a setup, you know, key matching. Okay. uh, A rhythm game. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so I was looking through the history of, 
uh, Guild Wars 2 music, because um, it was originally written by Jeremy Soule, uh, who did the original Guild Wars, Guild Wars 2, uh, the, the shipping game. And then um, one of the sound designers uh, took over for uh, music, uh, McLean Deemer, who sort of became the, the primary composer for Guild Wars 2 after we shipped. Um, and so... Uh, I was looking back through through Jeremy's music um, to sort of see if I could find like what are what are the the uh, the Guild Wars two uh, Christmas songs mm-hmm. or you know equivalent thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had done music for previous like uh, Christmas festivals in Guild Wars one, but it was all kind of like uh, derivative of existing like uh, real world Christmas music uh, carols and stuff. Um, so I was like, well, um, I can arrange some like of the sort of classic melodies from the game, but why not write my own, uh, my own Christmas carols, uh, for, for the game. So, um, I, I wrote a couple of those and put them in, uh, put them in the bell choir and, uh, and this was you, you were prototyping a bell choir or you were like, you were set up to actually put this together. Yeah, it was it was kind of started as a prototype um, because we needed to sort of prove you do sort of like a proof of concept for sure. uh, some some new new ideas for things and um, so I put this together um, pretty much as a prototype but with the intention of hopefully going into full production on it mm. and uh, I showed it to the audio team and they were like oh whoa you like you actually wrote those. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a composer also. Um, <laughs> and uh, As many composers I, eventually say, I'm also a composer. <laughs> also, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> common, common way into things. Right, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I got in touch with uh, McLean, who was the, the main composer at the time. And he, he sort of, you know, we were in this, a similar sort of situation where he kind of got into his position because he was, you know, a sound designer and, and he also wrote music and got the opportunity to, to write some more things for the game after it launched. Um, and so he was, you know, very, uh, willing to work with me and, and sort of let me submit something to the audio team, see Mm -hmm. if they, they want, they liked it. Um, so I did a sort of an orchestral arrangement of, of one of the carols that I wrote and, uh, the audio team loved it. They sent it to the cinematics team and they were like, Oh shit, this is really good. We need to like, uh, use this in a trailer uh so they actually uh completely cut the trailer around the track that i wrote wow um and so that was sort of my debut there uh for guild wars and then the rest was lena reen is a video game composer that's (laughs) that's a pretty rad story i actually uh you say that you didn't covertly plan your way to sneak into (laughs) the video game music business but with a story like that you could you could have fooled me but uh, that's very cool. Uh, so I want to, of course, uh, selfishly get into Celeste, uh, which is where you find oh. yourself now. Uh, no, no selfishness required. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's, so you were uh, co-working with other uh, video game writers and designers and what have you for uh, Guild Wars 2. And mm-hmm. uh, you've worked on other projects as well. I listed them before. Uh, and yeah. then that eventually led you to Matt Makes Games Incorporated to uh, write their entire the entire score for their game celeste Mm -hmm. uh how did you come across this endeavor um so while i was working on guild wars 2 i was also uh just kind of uh befriending a a lot of people um in the uh, indie game space and uh 
we had met up at at GDCs and stuff because I was going uh, going there to uh, meet people sort of off off of my usual like arena net uh, gig stuff and because I really wanted to get more into the the industry as just sort of myself rather than a part of a larger company. Um, so I met a bunch of people uh, both on Twitter and uh, in you know uh, San Francisco at, at GDC. And just kind of kept kept networking, and a good friend of mine uh, knew Matt and company, and she actually introduced my music to them. And uh, so I just got this DM on Twitter from Matt saying, "Hey, I'm working on this game. Uh, would you like to do the music? I think you'd be <laughs> a perfect fit for it." So almost every almost every gig that I've gotten uh, from that point <laughs> onward <laughs> was sort of like. Twitter DMs is like, hey, I, I, I've checked out your music. I, you know, I really sure. want to work with you on something. Yeah, um, so yeah, about through the culture, networking. Yeah. 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 At what point in the development of the game of Celeste was that? It was very early, um, which is what I prefer. Uh, it was about six months into development at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first couple of areas uh, in the game had been pretty much finished from a design standpoint. Um, and Matt had actually written some temp music that was in there um, to just you know get some some ideas going for what the game might sound like. And um, so that was kind of what he was showing off uh, before I joined the project. And, uh, so it was pretty much, you know, just those two levels and, you know, nothing was super finalized yet. They kept on getting iterated on afterwards. Um, so, you know, I got the chance for the rest of development to really be in there, uh, right at sort of, uh, prototyping and and gray boxing all of these these level ideas and the the pacing of them the mechanics of them um and you know from my my time as a designer and tester like i i sort of knew that stage of development really well so i was able to to get in there and do some play testing and kind of get um an early idea of what this um what the structure of the, of the level might entail um, and really see it come together piece by piece and just keep playing new builds um, to see see the development of the of the levels come together as I was working on the music. So in a lot of ways, like I was just, you know, any other discipline working on a level, um, you know, the art was coming in, the writing was coming in, my music was coming in. Um, and so it was all just all at the same time and really had that benefit of working for like a full year and a half on the game as it was being developed so let's talk a little deep in the weeds music uh for a second just based on uh what you're saying what uh you say obviously everything's coming in at the same time and everything's being Hmm. i guess organically uh interwoven uh but can you tell us a little more in depth of like what how that benefited you here how that benefits you in general as a musician uh getting uh getting into the game as it's actually uh being conceived and being actually uh built Mm -hmm. well i think it really speaks to the benefit of being able to write um an adaptive and dynamic score Mm -hmm. uh for a video game um because you know games are intrinsically about the interactions with them and so uh we really want the interactions to be meaningful and so if you're coming in at 
say like you know for a for a film or a tv show you're usually coming in at the very end of development you know everything is is there all the picture is there um you know you're just putting putting the final touches on on the on the the whole completed thing Mm -hmm. uh to make it sort of come together orally Mm -hmm. and the downside to this when you're working on a game is that there's no chance to really let those pieces uh bounce off of each other um and so if you come in at the end and you know the game is already done and you know you've got temp music or whatever that's sort of that's that's everything that the designers or or creators of this game sort of intended but it gives very little room for creativity on the composer's part and also um little room for iteration not just for the music but for the game as well mm-hmm. um which i think you know it absolutely strengthens it both ways um to to, to be that part of that process mm-hmm. I would. I can definitely see where it worked. I used a word before, uh, dynamic, and mm-hmm. that is definitely a very striking element of the music in this game. Uh, dynamics in video games aren't completely uh, unheard of. Uh, pardon the pun, music unheard of, but uh, it's um, <laughs> it's something that I haven't seen a lot of in the indie space because uh, uh, for reasons I don't know actually. But I just think of let's say uh, Shovel Knight is a game that I'm just very fond of. It's a 2D platformer yeah. built by a small team. And so the music in that game is very, uh, it's very reflective of music from games that inspired it, say like 2D platformers from the bit eras of video games. It's very Mm -hmm. static music. It's great music, but it kind Mm -hmm. of sticks to the same loop. Uh, With one exception, though. Uh, The the town music actually is dynamic, which is really cool. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it definitely, (laughs) as you move around in the town, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have known that. So that's true. Okay. So aside from the town thing, I stay, stand uncorrected. That's fine. But yeah, so absolutely. So yeah, there's, uh, but in, in this game specifically, Celeste, there Mm -hmm. is a whole lot of dynamics used. Uh, normally it's a, big crescendo from the beginning of the level to the end of one of the levels that uh, I particularly love the music of was the Celestial Resort. And uh, the theme is first for that level. There's a couple of themes, but uh, the main theme that permeates throughout the most of it is first introduced when you get into the ghost hotel and you meet the ghost, Mr. Oshiro. And the theme is played on a harpsichord-esque synth and like has a creepy lead. There's a little bit of like imitation or uh, diminishment, a lot of cool musical things happening there. And then it starts up later on piano once you start that cleaning segment uh, where you're helping Mr. Oshiro uh, put everything back together by going to these segmented areas. time you beat one of these segmented areas there's like three maybe new additional instruments are added or they drop in and out uh one place you beat and then hi-hats and high drum sounds are and a whistling lead synth come in 
the second area, this really resonant uh, thick synth bass and a kick drum drop in. And then uh, the last one, the lead comes back in and the beat just fills out entirely. end of the level uh when you're facing uh big head mr oshiro where he's big demon oshiro uh this huge awesome version of that same lead comes in with this sick drum solo that just bashes and kills as you're dying and i remember that specifically <laughs> because i was dying constantly to mr big oshiro head but oh, yeah. i was just loving the response of madeline exploding to the beat and it just was very very I hate using this word, but it was very visceral uh, and very reflective <laughs> sure. of what was happening. just one example of how many of the uh, themes and many of the tracks in the game uh, reflect what's happening in the level or they just react to the level. Uh, how did you come to this style of like dynamic scoring? I know you talked about it being part of actually uh, being there from the ground level, but uh, what other things uh, inspired you to be able and allowed you to be able to do uh, that style of writing. Sure. Um, so one of the sort of the things that I was thinking about while I was, I was writing music for this level specifically, um, was when, when I went into it, it was very much like we had just finished the first level and we kind of did some dynamic stuff, but it was very, you know, it was sort of loose and, and, and not, you know, tied to progression necessarily, but, um, sort of your general, uh, position based on the, the main path of, of the level. Um, so when we got into, uh, the celestial resort, uh, we really wanted to, um, play with dynamic music a whole lot more. And this was when we were kind of like, structuring the whole thing. So I knew that there was going to be sort of like three different main stages of, of the level. There is going to be sort of the introduction to the hotel. There is going to be the, the cleaning segment. Mm -hmm. And then there was going to be a big boss chase thing. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to 
develop some themes that were then sort of all paid off in the final boss chase. Um, and so I, you know, was playing through and was realizing, okay, cool. There's like, uh, doors and, and locks were sort of, or locks and keys rather were sort of a, a new mechanic that was being added specifically for this level. And so I was like, okay, on this side of things, like, the metaphor is kind of like you're unlocking more and more of the soundtrack as you're mm, progressing mm. through the level. And so kind of using that as a literal metaphor to your progression. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when you get to the cleaning segment, I thought like, basically there's there's a very sort of direct metaphor that's being made um, in the gameplay as well as in the music where, you know, you've got this huge mess and Mr. Oshiro is kind of like in this cycle of like unable to, to clean up and it's very relatable. Mm, Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, and so in a, in a number of ways, like you're trying to help him, but in this, at the same time, you are sort of exerting your, your agency over him and he's kind of getting more and more destabilized mm-hmm. as you're helping him clean things up. And so I thought, you know, what if instead of, you know, sort of clean, you know, the, the cleaning thing was definitely like a, a very literal, like, okay, there's different stages to this. And so we're changing things about the music as you clean up the hotel. And so I thought, why not reflect actually like Mr. Oshiro's sort of mental state as you are, um, as you're sort of cleaning and, and getting him slightly more agitated, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're doing all this, all this work for him. And, uh, and so as you are cleaning up the mess, you are actually building up the track and making it more and more kind of unstable, mm-hmm. um, until, you know, in, in the actual like soundtrack, uh, track, to be uh redundant yeah (laughs) Uh, it it goes directly into that explosion right like you kind of you get the final thing and then it goes straight into uh uh, mr oshiro kind of melting down and coming after you um Mm. and you know that is delayed a little bit in the actual progression of of the level but um it was really sort of that sense of like just building and building and building and just kind of then letting loose um and that was sort of a, a a direct relation of wanting to build up themes and kind of pay them off at the end of the level. Bouncing off of that quick, this game, Celeste, is uh, being regarded very highly. It's a very well-designed platformer. Uh, It's got a beautiful aesthetic. The music's fantastic. And something that is very distinct about this game is its tone. Instead of being this standard, uh, grueling platformer that kind of pokes fun at the player and relishes the frustration the player goes through by going through the challenges. Uh, It kind of encourages the player as it encourages Madeline or even just reflects the the frustrations you're going through and acknowledges them uh, in this very unique story of uh, overcoming one's own inner conflicts, uh, whatever they may be brought up by or whatever they may be uh, at that. So uh, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, uh, talking about Mr. Oshiro's conflicts being uh, reflected in the music, I'm wondering how much of the game's music in general do you feel is reflective of the tone of the the game, the game's uh, overall message? Were there Mm -hmm. things that you, these themes, were these things that you were thinking about? How did you incorporate the music to reflect more than just say uh, the actual jumping around and like aesthetic of the levels? Yeah. I think to 
to to answer your first question, like I think pretty much all of the music um, is very reflective of this. And I Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that it was um, because in a lot of ways, like the the music is especially for games that don't have sort of the benefit of like a traditionally told narrative. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no voice acting. There's no like sort of emotional qualities that are. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's sort of like. The scenty voice, voice acting. Yeah, yeah the yeah. scenty voices are cool. Yeah, yeah they are great. Um, but there's a lot that sort of needs to be conveyed um, through means other than, you know, traditional storytelling. And so to me, uh, a big part of a musical score for a game is the ability to tell that story um, through a number of different ways. And, you know, one of them is, of course, through the music. Um, so whenever I approach... Uh, a score for a game, I'm thinking not necessarily um, in terms of just, you know, musical uh, setting. Um, it definitely, I mean, I mean, it depends on, on what I'm scoring, right? Um, there is a track, for example, in Guild Wars 2, which was like, here is this piece of music that is describing this room that you're in. And it's very sort of descriptive of that. Um, but in the sense of, of Celeste, like everything is about sort of the action that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, throughout the game, like, you know, the, the agency you have on your character is you are uh, playing, you know, you're jumping and climbing this mountain. And so, you know, the music is reflecting all of that. And, you know, it could it could have just been you know, here's, here's music that reflects this abandoned city, or here's this music that reflects the hotel itself. Um, but with such a strong focus on the characters and sort of the, the conflicts and, and everything, like I really wanted to focus more on what the character arc was, you know, what Madeline is thinking at every step of the journey, because, you know, it's very much her, her climb up this mountain and Mm. every step of that is, uh, tied to something uh you know that is both internal and external you mentioned the first level of uh, the forbidden city uh that mm-hmm. theme specifically uh i just wanted to talk about because that track is a little different from the rest of the rest of the soundtrack because it uh doesn't necessarily not have dynamics it has dynamics of course but it doesn't evolve with the level in a way that the rest of them do or at least in a way that i noticed but it is a very complicated piece of music compared to the others uh maybe more harmonically like there's actually some interesting things going on where you're fleshing out the main theme which ends up being the main theme of the rest of the game just talking about that track, though, well, well, why was that differentiated? Am I imagining how it's different from the rest of the soundtrack, or that seems no, more? I, I com- don't, yeah, I don't think you're imagining it. It's it's very much reflective of a number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it was uh, absolutely the very first track that I wrote for the game, um, oh, wow. and uh, it actually went through um, a couple of iterations um, on its way to get there. Um, actually included the the first iteration that I that I ever did in the sort of a bonus track on the B sides album, and uh, it's sort of this really just like peppy upbeat kind of you know it wouldn't be out of place in like a Kirby game or something and just like yeah. real is kind of like cheerful um, and I love it like you know that was kind of like mm-hmm. what established the the main theme of the game uh, in you know, a certain, certain way. Um, cause I was thinking, uh, melodically, um, I really wanted to establish a, uh, a melody that was iconic to the game. 
and uh, was able to be both a symbol for the game, but also just, you know, able to be reused over and over again, which is, I, I think is a, a, an example of a, a strong theme as something that can be used both as a melody for a song, but also as kind of like a leitmotif that informs the rest mm-hmm. of the music. Um, and it was also a theme for Madeline. Um, oh. And so uh, I, I tend to get really like, I went to music school, so I get very symbolic when sure, it comes to writing music. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, coming up with a melody for uh, for the the game and for for Madeline, um, the the melody itself is actually a bit of a climb because um, mm-hmm. it goes da 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 da. Uh, and then dun, da, 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 da. and so yeah. every time that kind of comes back again mm-hmm. it you know is sort Gets of climbing higher and higher yeah. and kind of like you know if you charted it out on on sheet music like you would see like here's actual diagram of a mountain sure um and, I, and so i really wanted to to create something that was very central to the game in, in a number of different ways thinking of like you know sort of the really iconic themes of, of game music you know you've obviously you've got like you know mario 1 1 you've got sort of that um that sense of like these games have established not just this level's music but also the entire series or game that they're a part of mm-hmm. in this one piece of music and so that was like the challenge that i took upon myself i really wanted to do something that was just as iconic um and so I wanted to not think about necessarily the dynamicism of the soundtrack, but, you know, just creating a piece that I could draw a whole lot of material from um, and ended up doing that a lot, um, mm. thankfully. That's uh, definitely what you've achieved. You, it's a very iconic theme. And uh, oh, that's you. more supported, of course, when you uh, reiterate on it in very interesting uh, and creative ways later on. But I mean, mm-hmm. we heard it over and over in that first level as we died over and over. It got in our <laughs> brains. But it also was, again, you, you fleshed it out even in that first theme. Uh, in ways that keeps it interesting, uh, more mm-hmm. so than maybe some of the tracks that you refer to from uh, olden days of games. Uh, not to disparage them, but like it's it's no. definitely an evolution in a way. So that's yeah. uh, definitely appreciated uh, that variety while we're playing the same level over and over again. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I wanted to ask a bit of a hardball musical question. Uh, this sure. is something maybe you might not be able to answer. Uh, I certainly wouldn't know. Uh, I want to know what the key is to a good hook, like to a good melody or theme. Uh, you said, mm-hmm. you mentioned that this is 
the theme here is representative of climbing because if you chart it out, it would show, uh, it would illustrate that you're, the theme itself is climbing up. But anyone mm-hmm. could just write a theme that's climbing up, going down, going up, going down. But you wrote one that's really good. So what what would you say <laughs> if you had to? Is the key to a good uh, a good theme or a good melody? Mm. I think part of that is a mystery. Uh, part mm. of that is a lot of study and a lot of kind of uh, embodying good melodies and good melodic writing. Um, mm. It's just taking in so much music and really just kind of you know letting it become become a part of you and sort of become uh, your vocabulary vocabulary that you're speaking with when you are writing music mm-hmm. um and you know to to uh, for for an, like an analysis purpose like or analysis purposes uh <laughs> i think a good <laughs> a good melody is one that has a good economy of of sound to it it has uh a variety of of things uh, rhythmically, uh, the relationship of notes to each other. Um, I think it, you know, um, the strength of a melody really is in kind of there, there. There's there's so many melodies in the world, and some of some of so many of them are like very uh, iconic, and some of them are very just kind of bleh and derivative. Yeah, and. You know the the melodies that stick with us are are the ones that have just kind of like you know the je ne sais quoi like that just mm-hmm. the right it's you know it's it's you know it is one of those impossible things to describe sure. but it yep. like yep. T- to me it's it's really just kind of like interesting intervals surprising uh, mm-hmm. surprising changes uh, mm-hmm. and as many opportunities as possible for iteration um, and variation. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you definitely—that's as good as anyone else could do. So I applaud you on it. <laughs> the um, the availability for iteration is an important one in this theme. It yeah. comes up all the time in uh, the rest of the game. Uh, was that something you were? Uh, well, you already said that that's something you were uh, hoping to do and hoping to incorporate later when you were yeah. writing Celeste, or maybe when you're writing other uh, game music that is based on a central theme. Uh, mm. when you're writing the rest of the music, are you thinking ahead of time, I need to get the theme in there somewhere, I need to work it out, or does it happen as you're messing around? What's the uh, what's the process of getting the theme in there? I think for for a lot of uh, for a lot of things that I work on, it really kind of comes from living in that 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 musical world that you've sort of established or has already been established for you. Um, because if you're sort of speaking with the vocabulary of that game, you know, you've kind of got those melodies sort of at the back of your head at the ready. And those are sort of like things that are, you're just kind of thinking about ambiently as you're writing music. Mm. So for example, when I was writing Guild Wars, like um, one of the, you know, the I, the theme for for Guild Wars that Jeremy wrote is like literally the most like simple thing in the world, but it's so memorable because it's mm-hmm. it's just a scale going up and down. It's da 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 da, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and then you know that's the first part of it, and then da 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 da, mm-hmm. and you know it kind of it. But the da 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 da, like you can put that in anywhere. Like you can put mm-hmm. that anywhere. Like yeah. <laughs> just those that ascending, uh, the ascending and descending series of notes. Like mm-hmm. uh, you can you know, along with the chords, obviously, that go with them or not, um, that becomes a part of what 
your writing. And so it just kind of, it seeps in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so writing Celeste, like everything was framed around the, just the, the motifs that had been established. And as I wrote more and more stuff like that, those themes just kind of kept coming back because that was, um, that was where I was living in terms of, uh, coming up with material. The instrumentation of this uh, soundtrack is very interesting. It's electronic mostly, but as a composer who's gone to school for this stuff, you obviously know how to do orchestrations uh, for like or- full orchestral music or electronic mm-hmm. music, which is mostly what we hear in Celeste, I would say. But uh, mm-hmm. you've mentioned Celeste as being a hybrid of the two. Can you explain how so? Um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of basis for Celeste in sort of two worlds of, of music, I guess, that I, I inhabit. Um, mm. You know, I very much kind of grew up in the, the orchestral and chamber music world, and then electronic music and sort of more of a pop music structure has kind of been something that... Um, has been sort of a something that I've explored afterwards um, and sort of learning to embrace the strengths of both of those um, kind of eventually sort of led to where I'm at with Celeste, where you have a very uh, just kind of expressive uh, rubato uh, uh, piano part, uh, piano playing um, mm-hmm. and sort of that, you know, what is is commonly referred to as sort of that classical style of of composition. Um, But then there's a whole lot of stuff in there that is uh, kind of based in uh, electronic music, dance music, um, breakbeat stuff, um, a lot of loops, a lot of um, just you know, sampling things and, uh, or, you know, sampling myself and, and twisting them around and stuff. And so I think production technique, um, is something that I've been, you know, focusing more and more on as I've sort of broadened as a composer. Um, and so I really went in deep with a lot of soundtracks that I've been doing recently. Like I did Hackmud, which was very just kind of like, you know, ambient trance kind of like hacker music from the nineties. Um, and that was like going in super deep, you know, I released an EP, uh, under the name Karain and really kind of embraced some deep house kind of vibes. Um, and I was like, okay, let's, let's bring back, let's bring, (laughs) let's bring back the, the classical Lena and, you know, kind of, uh, try to integrate them in a way. And a lot of composers, um, I feel now are like really getting into the sort of hybrid of electronic and orchestral music, um, in a, in a way that kind of has become a bit of the new standard, like thanks to like people like Hans Zimmer and that sort of Uh that school of music where it's like very big epic music bolstered by synths, um, or the sort of the, the revisiting of eighties, uh, synth music through, you know, pop music, like, you know, danger or, you know, perturbator or, you know, Carpenter Brut, uh, like, the synth wave um, kind of music like that's really sort of revitalizing that uh, love of huge, big synths, you know, Blade Runner coming back and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things happening in music where people are kind of like, okay, maybe we don't need to use all orchestral music for everything. Um, and I've very much been a, a proponent of that, even though like I've written orchestral music a lot and I, sure. uh, and 
you know, going back to like the music that I was writing in high school, it was like very much influenced by uh, JRPGs and, you know, just games of that era where it was, it wasn't all orchestral music. Like there's a whole bunch of shows now like video games live and play orchestra and stuff that sort of reframe everything in an orchestral perspective. But like so many of those old like JRPGs on the PS1 and stuff were like, you know, they were doing all kinds of crazy hybrid stuff of rock and synth, you know, uh, orchestral stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the strengths of music that's kind of emerging now is is sort of embracing that kind of uh ability to to put a whole bunch of different instruments together and and make it sound really cool so talking about hybrid music and being a proponent of incorporating that more do you have plans to incorporate it more in your future projects and what what might some of those projects be sure um you know, I guess with any interview with a, a composer that's working on things that are NDA, I can't talk about a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I I will say that I'm working on a number of things that are mostly uh, going to be doing some live instrument recording, um, oh, cool. but I'll probably be uh, re- recording uh, some really cool uh, instrumentalists. Uh, and mixing in a little bit of light synth mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but I've also got a solo project that I'm working on, uh, an actual solo game project uh, called Escape, uh, spelled E-S-C, like the keyboard key. Oh, keyboard escape. Um, yeah, I have one of those. Yeah, right yeah. <laughs> hey, same, cool. Uh, <laughs> Um, and it's this uh, interactive novel that I've been working on, um, you know, kind of like a visual novel, but I, there's not a lot of visuals to it, so I didn't really want to call it one. Okay, um, cool. Because uh, one of the other things, many other things that I do, like I'm also a, a writer, I've published mm-hmm. a novel, a couple of short stories, and so oh, I really wow. wanted to sort of combine music and and words into something. Uh-huh. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'll make a game. <laughs> this is your, <laughs> no, your, your guest-sumped Kunstwerk right here. This is your, your ring cycle. <laughs> You're going to do all of it, the writing, the designing, the, the music. <laughs> That's fantastic. Almost. Um, I, I did hire two two friends of mine to, ah. to fill in where I'm, I'm less competent. Oh, wow. uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm working with this really cool uh, uh, designer and uh, artist named Data Erase. Uh, she does a whole lot of like cool like glitch glitch pixel art kind of stuff and uh she does a lot of like clothing design but also sort of remixes old uh pc engine uh anime games and just kind of like makes weird just disturbing glitch art and uh so she's doing some backgrounds for the game um and or just all all the art for the game really and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tumela, who did one of the remixes um, for B-Sides, as well as mm. the game uh, Read Only Memories, uh, he's uh, doing sound design for me. Uh, I'm, he, uh, there, there's a lot of like Foley kind of stuff in it, and that's you know less, less my expertise, so I brought him sure. in to, to do a little bit of that. And yeah, I'm just kind of trying to figure out the, the final polishing on the, on the game, so I'm hopefully releasing it in the next couple couple months or so oh wow very exciting we'll definitely yeah, keep an eye out for that original soundtrack for that and, and everything so Good. that'll be yeah. probably the next uh next soundtrack for me that'll be coming out okay very cool so we'll keep an eye out for that uh you brought up something yeah. i don't want to take up too much more of your time i've taken up plenty of it already but you brought up <laughs> the b-sides uh i'm sure. on the b-sides right now they are uh tormenting me terribly uh i i just spent the past uh 30 minute train ride over back mm. to the home 
uh, on one screen and I finally beat it, but it's, uh, it's, okay. it's really, really painful stuff, but it's really cool too. Yeah. But, uh, the B sides are very interesting, uh, in the music department because, uh, they are remixes of themes you've written, but they are remixes <laughs> done by, I think, uh, some of your colleagues and friends. Can you tell us more about them? Yeah, exactly. So when we were designing uh, or developing out the, the whole scope of the game, uh, there, it was very clear at a certain point that we were going to have the normal series of levels and then also like really hard sort of challenging remixes of them. Why and at the time, they were actually called remix levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of got an idea in my head because first off, like I was looking at my availability and just, you know, I was I was working part time on Celeste like all the way mm-hmm. until uh, October before the game came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to to do a whole new series of tracks for all of these harder levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, remix. Uh, why don't I see if I can get some remixes? Um, and so kind of push around some ideas of like maybe get another artist to just do a bunch of remixes. Um, and I was like, you know what? Why not just do uh, a different artist for each level? Like, just reach out to a whole bunch of people. Why <laughs> uh, get as many people as I could on it? Um, and so, yeah, there's just like a whole bunch of colleagues and, and friends of mine that uh, sort of range between, uh, you know, industry veteran or just kind of is just uh, wanting to get into games uh, more. Uh, and so, I really wanted to give them the opportunity to to do something maybe that they. Uh, hadn't done before. Um, and so, yeah, just reached out to a whole bunch of people and uh, amazingly, all of them said yes. Uh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just brought them on and basically just gave them the anything they needed. Um, it was like, here's here's all the music that I wrote for this level. Here's uh-huh. uh, the stems, uh, you know, the, the individual tracks. Here's the MIDI data. Like, you know, use whatever you want. Go nuts. Just write something that you're mm-hmm. happy with. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, so they just kind of went to town and, and turned in a whole bunch of really cool uh, tracks. My one quarrel with the B-sides is that now <laughs> I've gotten to the top of the mountain, so Madeline's story is like semi-done, or as far yeah. as I can tell. And then when <laughs> I get to the B-sides, there's these moments where like, it very much requires that you save your dashes. You know, like you go oh, for a very yeah. long period of time, you don't dash. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, if I mess up at some point and dash by accident... I'm still alive, but I can't go any further, so I have to just die. And then it's like <laughs> Madeline's just giving up, and that makes me very sad. Like she got to the top of the oh, mountain, no. she shouldn't give up. But she uh, did. yeah, but the B sides are mm-hmm. fantastic. <laughs> Lena, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And of course, everyone remember uh, you could check out uh, Lena's stuff on Celeste or on her website and Bandcamp. And she's got a game coming out in the hopefully near future, Escape. Yeah. And we'll uh, make sure to uh, take a look at that when it comes out. Uh, once more, thanks, Lena. I appreciate it. Thank you. What's up, everyone? Oh, boy. I don't know. That was terrible. Um, <laughs> well, that's the one. I'm going to use it now. Oh, is it? This is all going in. One? All of it. Yeah. Oh, this is all going in? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, uh, my name is Mike Pierce, and welcome to the Gaming Trend Reboot Podcast. I've been out for a while on training um, with my new job here in the UK, and I actually did another type of training earlier this week, but 
Hopefully, we're going to be returning to a more normal schedule this week. And in doing so, I will be linking up with my co-host, Mr. Joseph DeClara, who is with me here in the studio. Well, the virtual studio here Uh now. What's up, Joe? How you doing? (laughs) Mike, it's been so long. I'm so happy to hear your awkward blunderings as you go through this, because I normally have them just as a normal trend of my own. So it's nice to hear that like time away puts you down to my level. But uh, unfortunately, you'll get back to your normal, well-composed self uh, in the next couple of weeks, but it's, it's good well, to have you down so, here. I'm definitely a bit rusty around the edges at the moment. That's for yeah. sure. It's but, great uh, to have yeah. you back, man. I'm very excited to get back to our show. It's great to be back. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm excited too. I've actually been, I was, I was intending to try to do some podcasts with you while I was gone, um, in, in Nottingham, but it just, it just didn't work out. And I didn't have any of my equipment with me. All I had was, you know, like an iPhone and the little, the those little headphones that come with it so the quality probably wouldn't have been very sure good. that could be a little rough if there's like uh like a, a huge scoop that uh like mike pierce needs to get his word on we could get like maybe a 15 20 minute little scoop of you on your phone like uh uh as as it's happening or or you know just to get it in the podcast but for the that's what for we the should proper, have done yeah, like but i mean uh, not a lot of scoops happen so we're okay like we did but right. but uh yeah next time we should definitely get you on the phone and then if not we'll just connect at home base i like that that's good that's a solid plan joe that's a solid plan so speaking of scoops, we've got uh, a few recent news stories here, and uh, the first one is just a quick. It's just a quick one. It's about uh, the amount of money that Activision Blizzard made from all of 2017's microtransactions, and that comes out to about a whopping four billion dollars. By well, they're technically classed as in-game purchases, but that's pretty much what everyone knows as microtransactions for the most part these days. Um, And you have to keep in mind also, too, that Activision owns a company called King, which are the makers of Candy Crush. And as we all know, Candy Crush, for whatever reason, is still a massively popular mobile game. I have yet to figure out why people like that game so much, Mm -hmm. but it it is. And um, so... Yeah, people like just, just playing on their phones, just, you know... The, the bright colors and they don't call it a game and that's fine. That's, that's what they do, man. And so King makes a couple other mobile games as well, but of that $4 billion that they got for microtransactions, fully $2 billion of it is all from King. So you can see that mobile games are ridiculously lucrative and microtransactions are crazy lucrative as well. Mm-hmm. So that means that Blizzard made $2 billion from PC and console uh, in-game purchases, which in this case would be mostly what, like, let's see, we got Hearthstone, we've got Overwatch, um, probably not much from Diablo 3 these days anymore. Uh, you call it Duty, Destiny 2. Am I forgetting any? I feel like I'm forgetting one. Uh, we have like I, Starcraft and WoW. Did we say? Did you say World of Warcraft already? Uh, yeah. No, I didn't. But yeah, Jesus, that's a pretty obvious one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Blizzard's <laughs> Blizzard's working hard, doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, it's uh, what what's interesting about this is obviously microtransactions. Although that's uh, subjective, a lot of people probably are not interested in micro talking about microtransactions anymore because it's all we fucking talked about throughout yeah. 2017, or at least the like last half of 2017. But this what's what's funny about this story and a previous story that came out, uh, just a statement from the head of EA, 
basically re-upping on microtransactions, saying microtransactions are the future. We uh, do plan on bringing more games as service type content to players, uh, meaning, yes, they're going to continue pushing for microtransactions in their games uh, in one form or another. And looking at this, you can probably count on Blizzard doing the same because they made a boatload on microtransactions. And what's funny is that there was a narrative going around. People were saying, oh, expect more developers are going to stand clear of microtransactions in an attempt to save a little face and to maintain their PR and their outlook. But that's just absolutely not going to happen when there's this much cash involved. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, and it's like you said, I think you you were mentioning EA and that they did. They, they talked about that just I think while I was gone with in ref, specifically in reference to Battlefront, too. Yeah. Because the whole this all started back in well, I don't know October or November about all the microtransactions in Battlefront Two and all that shit broke loose and everyone freaked out and then they decided okay well we'll get rid of microtransactions in Battlefront Two well a couple of weeks ago or whatever they quietly said yeah um, about that we're gonna keep doing that so big fucking surprise we're right back to where we were before mm-hmm. so. And like you said, it's just too much money. And I think that's what you and I have been saying for months now is that it's just it represents too much money and it's never going to go away. It's here to stay. Whether people like it or not, it's here to stay. So, I mean, I look, it doesn't mean that it's here to stay no matter what, whether people like it or not. If everyone just stopped buying games immediately, like every game that had a microtransaction, it just absolutely stopped. Then they would stop making it. The point is that even though we had this big outcry of, we don't want these in our games. Get these out of our games. Bow, Battlefront 2 and EA are a bunch of uh, greedy, money-grubbing uh, people, blah, blah, blah. The, all of the outrage explodes on the internet. All of these games in conjunction make a ton of money through microtransactions. So all this they're is saying is this: they've reached some kind of fever pitch where they need to backtrack a little bit and then fix how it works and then get back to... a place where people are are more complacent with spending a lot of money on their microtransactions right and uh chances are that's more likely what's going to happen than all of us stopping buying these games that have microtransactions or more more likely stop interacting with microtransactions uh yeah 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 and for all we know, people who interact with those things normally are totally fine with microtransactions, right? They don't read uh, our websites and read up on these opinion pieces and uh, check Reddit to see how many people are angry about Battlefront and their uh, in-game purchasing systems. Uh, they're just content spending their money on a game that they have disposable income and they see value in just spending money on that crap. And I don't understand that person, but I mean, that does that doesn't matter. It All that matters is that they're fine with it and companies are going to be uh, delivering to those people for as long as they're happy to buy games. All right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think really the thing is that it's kind of a silent majority of people, the people out there who engage in microtransactions don't care like we do about the existence of microtransactions. And they clearly represent a, the vast majority of people that participate in microtransactions and that's not saying anything about their demographics whether they're young or old or male or female or hardcore gamers or not i mean i'm sure it's a wide spectrum but um i mean it's i think it's kind of like politics a lot of the time right you have you have a small percentage of people at least in the u.s that get super involved in politics and you have a small percentage of the population that actually votes 
you know, the, the, the population of people out there that are allowed to vote 18 and over and are registered to vote far outweighs the amount of people that actually do mm-hmm. vote. There's so there's kind of this, just like with voting, there's kind of this group of people that seem to be okay with the status quo and they don't see any reason to change it and they're happy to just go along with right. it. And I feel like that's the same thing you have right now with gamers and microtransactions. There's a huge bunch of people who are fine with the status quo in gaming and they're just going to continue to do microtransactions and they don't give a shit either way. And then those of us who are super involved with it feel completely the opposite of that. But, you know, it's just where that's where we are. And like you said, until everyone just stops using microtransactions, they're going to they're going to be here. So as get used to the future. And it's not even like the silent majority necessarily. That's normally a case for uh, issues like this. But in this case, we heard a lot about the whales of microtransactions, right? These folks that secretively or secretly, excuse me, or just uh, unbeknownst to us, spend thousands of dollars on microtransactions. That's right. right. Yeah, like yeah, yeah heard, there are people. We heard that. from a Waypoint interview uh, on their podcast, someone who worked on the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer component. And that guy said, I'm telling you, we've seen a player, at least one, who spent Fifteen thousand dollars, something egregious like that. On it was, yeah, it was over ten thousand for sure. It was over ten thousand for sure. It was yeah, just, so five just figures nuts. on video game in-game purchases. Right, that is the kind of uh, demographic that these companies are interested in, and that is the thing that's going to keep them going for a very long time. underperforming recently and that's actually a a perfect segue into our next story Um, Dawn of War 3 which is an RTS and and a series Dawn of War series that I have always liked uh, from Relic Entertainment which is a Canadian developer you would if you haven't played Dawn of War you would know them from things like uh, Company of Heroes Uh, they're also developing the upcoming Age of Empires on behalf of Microsoft Trying to think what else they've done. Um, I know I'm forgetting another one. Company of Heroes. There was another big one that Relic did that I just is like on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of it. But mm. anyway, they're they're a good studio. They're a well known studio and they do a lot of um, a lot of RTS based stuff. And so Dawn of War three and I did the review for that. Was that was that 2017? It might have been. It might have been. It might have been early 2017. I don't even remember, but I was kind of. I, I gave it a good score, not a great score. I think. I think I gave it a six or a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, the this is so Eurogamer got a statement from Relic, and I should just read this first. And this is what it says: is while Dawn of War three has a dedicated player base, it didn't hit the targets we were expecting at launch, and it hasn't performed the way we hoped since. So. I mean, it goes on a little bit more, but that's essentially it. That's that's basically the whole statement boiled down in, in one sentence. It didn't sell as much as they wanted it to, and it didn't have enough continuing player base 
and uh, and sales for them to continue to pour more investment into it and add things like new races or new maps or new modes or another campaign expansion or something or other or excuse me a campaign expansion they never made a single campaign expansion um and this is kind of sad but at the same time this was this is one of the risks they took because they were trying to they were kind of trying to reinvigorate reinvigorate and reinvent the wheel so to speak for rts genre and they were trying to do that by incorporating some aspects of the moba genre into dawn of war 3 and i definitely talked about that at length in my review and it took me a while to get used to it and i was i really wasn't too into it for a while and then i kind of started to appreciate it a little bit for the multiplayer part but it did i did tire of it after a while and and it still really wasn't what i wanted and most of the fans that I've talked to about it or seen posting on Reddit about it and everything are all pretty much in agreement that what they really, really wanted for Dawn of War 3 was just a prettier version of Dawn of War 1. They didn't want Dawn of War 2, and they didn't want what Dawn of War 3 became with this MOBA stuff and a kind of a screwy campaign and all this other shit. They just wanted Dawn of War 1 reskinned, looking good, and updated basically and and i i kind of agree with them i think that would have worked fantastically well so would you say um, it was a but, design issue that uh resulted in dawn of war 3's uh limited success i think it was a design choice a risky design choice they were yeah they were hoping that they could capture a wider audience and interest some other people and grow the genre itself and by doing that grow sales and repopularize their games. And I think they knew it was a risk and, and it, it failed. Mm -hmm. It was, it backfired. Yeah. So I think that's exactly what it was. Cause I, I mean, I think the production value on the game was good. It was a gorgeous looking game. The animations were incredible. Some, some really hardcore people took issue with some of the animations and the, and the artistry because some of the iconic units weren't really animated the way they should have been, you know, to, um, to take into account the lore and all these other things. But if, if you want to get that nitpicky, then yeah, you're going to have a problem with the entire fucking thing. But, uh, I thought overall it was a very high quality game. It just, it just went about it the wrong way. Mm. And I, and I think the underperforming sales, and the slow or small player base demonstrate that pretty pretty conclusively. So that thing is basically gone. And now, as I said, Relic is probably putting all of those resources into developing the new Age of Empires, which should be, provided they don't do the same thing that they just did with Dawn of War 3, should be a huge well, hit yeah. because the Age of Empires series was massively popular with RTS fans. So... And people are super pumped about it. So that that should be a success for them. Um, and if it's not, then I I would be a little bit worried for Relic. Yeah, we'll yeah. See. once you uh, hit two flops, then uh, normally that is a surefire way of uh, signing your death certificate and uh, calling it quits yeah, for a publisher. It, uh, to at just, least significant layoffs. Yeah. 
at, at the very yeah, least. Exactly. So, so yeah. uh, I expect the same. I definitely expect uh, the the natural course of action if we look at how uh, devs do these things. Uh, Age of Empires, I assume it's already been in development for a while, but the the hope with a uh, seasoned franchise like that is that they would in today's day and age really dig into the roots that's what the uh that's what players all want you know we want to get back to its roots we want to get back to this right. um and so uh, and so we beat on boats against the current ceaselessly ceaselessly into the past right that's all we want we want to go back right. to ages of empires uh and we wanted to go back to dawn of war one uh and that's fine i can't necessarily uh blame relic for trying to uh, incorporate the MOBA uh, aspects of RTS games into their game because MOBAs are absolutely uh, cannibalizing the RTS ecosystem, yeah, right? That's what everyone says, yeah, is that RTS has basically gone away and MOBA is now the new RTS is kind of what people are saying. Yeah, so, so I can't, I assume that the halfway point is not good. Maybe if uh, this company relic were to get into moba just all hands on deck like let's make a moba game let's make it sick let's not make it a halfway point between rts and moba then people might be interested right maybe it does well maybe right. it doesn't it's risky but it's also not too risky because mobas are huge uh although i don't know like from what i hear mobas are kind of a gamble because they're ultra popular but at the same time uh, if anyone besides Valve or I forget the company that does League of Legends uh, steps into the ring, they don't do well. Like Blizzard has HOTS, uh, Heroes of the Storm, which has a lot of yeah. coverage, but also I hear it's just not nearly as popular as the other game. Uh, this is all you know, word of mouth I'm referring to, but I, I can imagine it being a risky uh, move to try and go all hands on with a MOBA, but... It's also risky to just put an RTS out there. So it's Relic is in kind of a really, really rough state uh, to be a company that's very much caught in the times. Uh, so, yeah. so I definitely sympathize with that. Um, but you seem to be a very big fan of their work. So I would love to see them continue to do well. I am. I mean, I think I think it shows too. Like, even if you're not an RTS fan, the quality of their RTSs is generally really good, um, and their games in general. I mean, the Company of Heroes series was phenomenal. People still, people still look back on the Company of Heroes series as one of the best RTSs probably ever made, as they do with the original Dawn of War. Um, and now that they're doing Age of Empires, I mean, just the I don't I don't think. Relic ever did Age of Empires in the past. I cannot, I don't know that for sure. I'd have to look it up, but I think this is the first Age of Empires that they've ever done. But just the fact that Microsoft is willing to, you know, trust that name and reputation to Relic should say that this is a, a very well-respected studio, mm -hmm. and and they are. So, I mean, it's just disappointing that it was a, uh, I, I hesitate to say failure, but um, I don't know what an in-between an in-between would be a disappointment maybe let's call it a disappointment so but they'll move on and hopefully hopefully Age of Empires is is that next step for them so we'll Hope see so. Um, so our next story of the day is well yeah I don't even know how to preface this one um, it's 
sick and disgusting, I guess, really. <laughs> it's maybe the way to, to Yeah, that's to put pretty it, much anyway, the best way to put it, sure. So uh, a man named Jess Cliff, so pro- you probably wouldn't know who he was unless you read this story. I'd never heard of the guy before either. But anyway, he's the co-creator of the original Counter-Strike, so game that a lot of us grew up playing or spent countless hours playing as teenagers or or whatever. Mm. Uh, his name is Jess Cliff. He's from Seattle, and he's just been charged by Seattle police, uh, let's see here, with commercial sexual abuse of a minor. And he, so he was arrested last week, I believe. This is this article is, yeah. So, yeah, last week. It would have been the first week of February he was arrested. And um, he's now been released on $150,000 bail. But that doesn't mean that he's, you know, he's like scot-free or whatever. That's bail. That's and, like you're, you're just not staying in jail while your trials yeah, are you're continuing. Just at, yeah. Right. You're just at home. He's nothing. just, you know enjoying playing counter-strike at home before he goes to jail for 30 well, years or whatever we also it also should be said uh from what i know uh it's jeff just cliff has not been uh found guilty yet these are just charges he uh, has he has not it is yeah, he pretty has devastating not, but... uh to be charged with this at all uh it's not a great look and uh also, yeah, like some of the things were that he said that he did not know uh, that the girl was 16 years old. And also the the actual issue here is that the legality of uh, this girl's work is not necessarily uh, cut in stone. Well, not cut, sorry, scar, sorry. It's not exactly black and white. Uh, these escort services or whatever uh, they're purporting this girl to have been a part of uh, kind of cut around the law and find loopholes with the law. And it's a thing that's been around for generations now. Right. Uh, so that's kind of the issue. Uh, from what I heard, one of the issues is that he had recorded one of their encounters oh, uh, without her multiple. knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Multiple. So that is a horrible, so horrible look. So that's definitely, let me yeah. read. So some of so, this is interesting. Interesting is not a word I should be using, but um Anyway, the uh, the juvenile victim, she was, I don't know if she still is. The way they're referring to her is that she's still a juvenile. Um, but I don't know, like I said, I don't know when this took place. So I don't know if she is now an adult or if she's still a minor or not. But anyway, it says um, in the police report, uh, Cliff supposedly paid her $300 an hour for sex three times. And. Oh, no, you're right, Joe. And on one occasion filmed them having sex against her will with an iPhone. Uh, And he claims that he didn't know at the time that she was underage and then found out after the fact. He has admitted to being on several dating sites that facilitate these so-called sugar daddy arrangements. He's admitted to picking up a date, taking her home having sex with her multiple times and or engaging in multiple sex acts and then compensating her monetarily for that as well. So it's, I mean, yeah, he's, he's not guilty yet, but, but all signs are pointing towards uh, something like that. At the very least, if he's admitted to picking someone up, having sex with them and then paying them for it, that's prostitution. So at the very least, he's going to get charged with something. Um, well, he's been charged so. with multiple things, and it's the wonder if it well, be but found I mean, guilty. at the very yeah. least, he'll be found guilty of prostitution yeah. because if he's outright admitting it, then I, I mean, the, 
you know, is, that's a slam it's, dunk it's, case. I guess so. I don't know the law. It sounds like that there have always been, and like my expertise on this is for movies, so don't trust me on this. <laughs> but like the escort business is a long-standing uh, enterprise that just exists because the loopholes are there and you're, the law can kind of protect you in that way. So I don't know. Right. Uh, it, it basically depends on how the exchanges happened, I guess. Uh, but again, I don't really know. Uh, all I know is, and I don't have much to add except that that's creepy. This guy sounds like a creep. Uh, hope there's not a lot of other creeps uh, making our games. And that's all I can really say. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what else to add really. Uh, Please don't be a creep out there. And uh, that's really, I don't know. I don't know what else to say on, on a really sorted. I, I guess all like we this. really say is if, if this is true, then that's pretty awful. And I feel, I feel for this girl. And I, I would also assume, well, I don't know. I don't want to get too far into it, but if she really was doing this as a minor, I would imagine she was probably not doing this by her own will either. I was imagine, imagining she's probably been forced into that situation um, as an underage prostitute. So that's that's pretty awful in and of itself. But I guess what I would just say is don't do shit like this. Mm. Just just don't. Yeah. That's, that's wrong. You wanted to talk about Celeste, didn't you? Well, sure. I would love to talk about it. Uh, Mike, you're not a big fan of platformers, although you've played a couple as our one of our contributing editors and reviewed them. Uh, yep. So you know of platformers and know the great, and you know that I love platformers. This game is an excellent 2D platformer that is uh, very much in the vein of, say, Super Meat Boy or. Uh, be, like any uh, Super Meat Boy is the one that comes to mind because Super Meat Boy also recently released on was all, recently was released on the Nintendo Switch, uh, which right. Celeste is on there as well, and that's what I'm playing it on. And so I'm comparing the two a lot because I was actually playing through Super Meat Boy uh, for the umpteenth time before downloading Celeste and playing that. And uh, the games are both very similar in that they uh, present bite-sized challenges, platforming challenges that are brutally hard and often have a lot of spiky surfaces or saw blades or all sorts of uh, really sinister looking hazards that you can jump on and you try to avoid. Uh, and they have crumbling platforms and all of the uh, tropes that you right. expect in a 2D platformer. <laughs> and that's great. Uh, that's the kind All of thing. the usual tropes. Man, you're just selling me. No, that's great. No, that those are good things. All the usual, like, uh, all the usual metaphors and things you would see. In, I know what in you the, mean. Yeah, I'm just being an sure. asshole. And... Uh, that's great. And it also has, however, this dash mechanic, which is very cool. Uh, the ability to like kind of dash forward very quickly in midair, uh, that you can recharge upon landing. Uh, what's especially cool about this game though, is the tone that it presents. Uh, most of the games like Super Meat Boy and other games I'm obviously failing to mention, uh, they all follow Super Meat Boy's model in that they uh, kind of are content with being an asshole. Like, they 
kind of poke fun at the player and uh, relish the frustration that it is causing for the player. And I happen to like that because it's uh, very honest and very uh, truthful to what is ex- I'm experiencing. Like Super Meat Boy, when you die, Super Meat Boy explodes in this very fart sounding uh like just explosion of blood and mush and meat and it's satisfying but also very frustrating because all of your efforts are squished in this very uh fanfareless uh splat and then you have to start over but it's not unfair uh the platforming is all possible you just have to be very good and all the mistakes are my own so i appreciate that uh, it's also very tongue-in-cheek humor that is employed in Super Meat Boy, uh, specifically. And in Celeste, it's very different. In Celeste, uh, it's a story about this girl who is climbing a mountain. And she can't exactly explain why she's climbing the mountain. She just feels the need to do so. It becomes more gradually more apparent that she's doing it as this kind of soul-searching um, exercise in that she's trying to overcome something within and she often runs into this character who is uh knowingly uh, aptly titled part of me and it's basically a reflection of herself but in a very evil looking form with red eyes and all that jazz and it's you find out later that it's actually kind of her own struggle against her like the parts of her that she dislikes, which uh, most likely are her fights with depression and anxiety, uh, which are shown in multiple ways throughout the game. And uh, it's actually way fascinating for a game that is a platformer. Normally platformers are kind of content with being either a poke fun at you kind of game or a Mario where you're stopping on uh you know, sentient mushrooms so that you could rescue a princess from a giant lizard turtle monster. Uh, you know, something ridiculous. That sounds way better to yeah. me. Well, I mean, those are fine, but I, and I love those, but it's cool to see a plaf- uh, game that chooses to just ignore uh, the simplicity of platformers and their, uh, their ability to tell um, well, their ostensible ability to tell a compelling story or lack thereof. And these people at Matt Makes Games Incorporated, uh, also the creators of Towerfall, which was a great game, they decided to make a really cool game about uh, this story of this girl overcoming uh, issues within herself. And as a result, the game kind of encourages you to overcome the game itself, which is very brutal, just like a Super Meat Boy or Mario or Mega Man or any of the old school games. Uh, But instead of poking fun at you, like Super Meat Boy would, which is fine, it encourages you and tries to uh, soften the blow with its tone, with its uh, style. Like instead of splatting in a jumble of meat and blood, uh, Celeste, well, not Celeste, Celeste is the mountain. Madeline, your character, uh, breaks up into this really cool ethereal uh, ring of orbs. And it's kind of pleasing to see. And it isn't nearly as frustrating and uh, provoking to see. So it's little hmm. things like that that I really appreciate in the game that I, uh, that I, like I said, I appreciate. And I think it's a super cool game that anyone should try. It's on Steam, it's on Switch, which is where it's best played because you can play it 
anywhere you are and it's like the best platform ever so that's always great yep yep i, I knew you were going to slip that in somehow it, or another. it is the best like this is definitely a perfect game for the switch for some reason 2d speaks to me a lot on the switch because uh i'm very happy with just picking it up and normally 2d games are very uh bite sides you can jump in play a little bit and that's definitely the case for this uh like it's screen based right. like you you have a screen presented to you and you have to be get past that screen of obstacles. And once you do, you get a little checkpoint. Uh, and I'm at a point in the game where each screen could take me two to two minutes to two hours, right? Like of retries and really trying to get past it. It's oh an God. extremely hard game. Once you get to the uh, extra levels, like the, the, the it makes me uh, frustrated just hearing your stories. I could never do that. I I've, I've done that. And those are the sorts of platformers that I just don't ever want to touch. These, I can't do these are that. definitely my bread and butter. These are my favorite kind of games. The, these, uh, these brutal platformers, uh, two, 2d platformers are my favorite. And uh, this game it's definitely a satisfying one and it's also fun. Like the mechanics in the game are really interesting and a lot of fun to play around with. And, uh, they steadily evolve and get cooler and better. And the music is fantastic, which I will talk about at length with, uh, Lena, I'm sure. So, uh, it's definitely a great game and everyone and anyone should play it. That's a fan of platformers or has the switch. It's just a game that you should have on there for sure. Right. Right. All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Uh, I hope that we can get you to talk about some games soon, get you to review a game or try out a new game. Uh, and in Boy, I don't know future. about reviewing and trying stuff out. I mean, if it's something really like something pretty quick and easy, maybe, yeah, maybe like a beta or an alpha or something. But these days, I don't know how the hell I'd ever get time to do a full review. You know, oh, man. you have to have time to play for at least a couple of days and then a couple of days of writing sure. and then all that. I don't know. So you don't have time like over the weekends anymore. Are you working like throughout the week? No, I mean, I have time over the weekends, but a weekend isn't really enough to get a game, download it, play it, write everything. Sure. And throw no, it up of again, course. Of course. Like yeah, really... You need those off hours to actually do that. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't know. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to well, do I that. Well, I mean, we got to get you but... to play something so we can like, you know, Hear, hear what's new in the Mike's yeah, favorite games. Yeah, I'll still be playing games one of these days. I'm thinking I, deci I, just, I decided recently that I will probably buy an X. What is it? An Xbox. What's the new Xbox again? The Why Xbox can I not think X. of this thing? That's what it is. Jesus, that's a horrible name. <laughs> Every time I hear that. Um, I've decided I will probably get one of those when Halo 6 comes out. Ooh, Don't know when that is. If it comes out. They they haven't said anything about it at all. Yeah. They've only consistently but. confirmed that it's they they have nothing to announce. Like every time uh, right. they feel like talking about, it, they're like not not ready yet, not ready yet. And I, it's totally I wonder if they're just I wonder if they're just going to do a complete revamp of what Halo is. Like maybe they uh, abandoned the campaign they've dug themselves into. Or maybe they re uh, redesign it so that it's like a shared world shooter like Destiny. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine they're going to come out with the same kind of game as Halo 5. Uh, or at least with the same story. Maybe the, the multiplayer is still the same because the Halo 5 multiplayer was good, but the campaign was horrendous. So I, I can't imagine. Do you know what else? might convince me to get an Xbox now that I think about mm -hmm. it. And this, this, again, this will depend largely on like 
which platform my friends are going to play it on. But if Borderlands 3 is announced this year, I may have to get whatever platform my friends are going to be playing that on. And if that's Xbox, then I would have to get an Xbox Mm. even before Halo comes out because I am a massively big Borderlands fan. And uh, I actually follow, I can never, Randy Pitchford, that's it, Randy Pitchford. Oh, sure. The the head of your box, I follow him. And with the recent, there was something really recent. Um, oh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk was selling those flamethrowers. Did you see that? No. Yeah, so you know how Elon Musk has the tunnel company called the Boring Company? It's a little pun. The boring, yes, you know, yes, they, they bore, bore tunnels. The bore the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this. He... I don't really know what the story is behind it, but he legitimately sold 20,000 flamethrowers for $5,000 a pop. They were like these white flamethrowers and it said the boring company on them. And it's perfectly legal as long as they're within limits, like the flame could only go 12 feet or something there. There were some limits on it. And uh, Randy obviously follows Elon on Twitter when Elon announced this and, and Randy was like, dude, Elon. Can I put this in the new Borderlands, please? He publicly said this on Twitter. Sure. And and Elon was like, yeah, sure, man, because I think Elon's a Borderlands fan. And so, yeah. you know, if Borderlands is completely ridiculous with the guns and all these other things. Yeah, of course. Somewhere in fucking Borderlands 3, there's going to be probably a boring company flamethrower. And I was just like, God damn it, this is cool. Oh, yeah. Our world that's is a, so cool. That's a game so seller for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so... I mean, I would have bought Borderlands 3 anyway, but um, I am even more pumped for it now than I was before. Yeah. And I love Randy Pitchford and I love Elon Musk. So um, Borderlands 3 is a funny one because like, I, I completely forgot about it until you mentioned it just now. And like, I remember there once was probably a lot of hype for Borderlands 3. They came out with Borderlands the pre-sequel, which uh, right. people were okay on. You know, it was a weird... Uh, it's stray from the series, and then they came out with what was that non Overwatch character shooter? It was a Hero Shooter. Oh yeah, what the can't even battle battle Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, okay. Yep. Man, we're gonna yeah. forget that one completely one day. It's just gonna yeah, disappear. Yeah, it's gonna be gone. People are gonna be like, "What the fuck game was yeah. that?" And, uh, yeah. That was that game that didn't do well and no one cared about. Oh, yeah, yeah. For, like it's so yeah. sad for them, but like that between those two games, I've completely forgotten about Borderlands entirely. So it's it's funny to hear it again, and it's totally a game that they'll probably they're probably working on, of course, uh, and probably have been for a while. Was like a was like a dark horse too when the first one came out, and no one expected it to do well, yeah. and it it just went flying off the fucking shelves. Like I. I couldn't even find a copy for like two weeks at that mm-hmm. time. I was still trying to buy everything physically uh, at that point, I think, for my Xbox. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't find one anywhere in my area for two weeks. It was just fucking sold out straight. Yeah. And um, God, I can't wait for that. Oh, I love the Borderlands series so much. That's going to be an awesome game. That's funny. I, I'm just going to be stuck on PC mostly and... Like I've been wanting, I've been interested in picking up Hunt, Monster Hunter because everyone's playing it, and yeah, I, I, I thought about that too. Yeah, and I'm pretty much set on uh, what's it called on Celeste. I mean, I'm still playing the the post game stuff. Like, there's you know harder versions of the levels you've already played, uh, but I really was looking for my next uh, video game to like dive into, and Monster Hunter looks like it, but. I resent the fact that it's not on PC. Like I am now a fully conditioned PC gamer. I just want to play on my PC or my switch and that's it. You know? Yeah. 
So I will. I mean, I know Borderlands Three will come out on PC because they released all the other Borderlands on PC as well. But uh, and I prefer to play it there. But again, it's one of those things like you have to play Borderlands with your friends. It's not. It's fun by yourself, but it is just not even. It's not even a shadow of what it can be if you're playing it on your mm-hmm. own. Like with buddies, Borderlands Three is just so much better. So I'll play that where my friends are. But I totally hear what you're saying. Once you're once you're through and through PC player, it's it's tough, tough yeah. to to want to play shit elsewhere unless it's something unique like the Switch. Yep. I can understand that that's where you want to play certain. Yeah, things. it's just a different but thing. I can actually have it with me. Like yeah. PC versus Xbox and PS4, I would take PC any day of the week. Yeah, of course. On anything. Yep. Yeah. So, all right. Well, with that, Joe, I think we're going to wrap it up. Unless you've got something else to say that you forgot about in the last. No, I just the last thing I want to say is I'm so glad to have you back on the show, and uh, I look forward to getting it back and uh, moving along in the future. It's going to be good. Are you looking forward to having me on your show next week? Oh my god, it's going to be great. We're going to do this whole thing where you come on my show. And I'll come on your show and it'll yeah. be the best. It's it's gonna be great. It is the yeah. best. It is the best. Yeah. Let's let's be real. It's the yes. best. All right. Uh well thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh as always, you can you can find me on Twitter at Grumpy Gamer. That's Grumpy with two R's. And you can follow Mr. Joe DeClara on Twitter at Joey Dagabonuts. That's bag of donuts with the D and the B switched. Uh, you can get a hold of Joe and I via email. Our email is podcast at gmail.com. No, God, that's a generic one. Podcast, <laughs> podcast at gamingtrend.com. And uh, for all your news and reviews and cool game content, please go to gamingtrend.com and tune in next week. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike.